You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, I don't know what your friends think about Christianity. If you go to work and you ask them, what do you think about Christianity, what would they say? For so many people, uh, people think that Christianity is actually a religion for the powerful. Just think about it, right? For much of its history, the church has actually enjoyed a really unique position of unprecedented power in the West. In the 4th century, Constantine the Great made Christianity the main religion of the Roman Empire. And even today, right now, if you go to the UK, the Queen is actually the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. So some people, they'll they'll look at the influence of Christianity uh, on our politics and our society, and they'll think that the Church, well, Christians must have a thirst for power. And it's no wonder that some people think that the Church is an institution, one of those old institutions that protects the rich and exploits the poor. If you're not a Christian... Let me say, you'd actually be forgiven for thinking that, Christian, that Christianity is a religion for the powerful, the successful, the affluent, for those people who have their lives together. But would it surprise you to find out that Christianity has actually always been a religion for the powerless? It's always been a religion for the powerless. Just look at Jesus, the person who founded this great movement. Uh, right throughout Mark's Gospel... Jesus has been always on the wrong side of religious and political power. Now, from as early as chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're plotting, they're out to kill him. And at every point of the last nine chapters, at every turn, Jesus has been opposed and attacked by the powers of his day. Some people might think that Christianity, it's a religion for the powerful, but it's as if Mark is showing us time and time and time again, no, the powerful never sit well with Jesus. Christianity is actually a religion for the powerless because Jesus himself is a king for the powerless. And today we're going to see him protect two of the most powerless, vulnerable people of his day. Powerless women and powerless children. And then at the end, we're going to finish up by looking at two take-home lessons for us today. That's our roadmap, powerless women, powerless children, and then two lessons for us today. Well, you might actually think in our day and age, isn't it offensive to call women powerless? But the truth is, that's actually been the experience of women across most cultures throughout history. Just think about it, even today in Melbourne, Uh, So many women are subject to experiences of powerlessness that men just don't regularly encounter. And let's face it, we just don't experience. We don't get it. As a man, I just don't understand the dangers of walking alone home late at night by myself in the same way that a lot of women do. I was talking to one of my friends who's a father. He said, Adam, my whole life I've never had to worry about my own safety walking around at night. Then I have a daughter who's a teenager walking around outside by herself and suddenly I I realize something that I never realized before. As a man, I don't have to deal on a personal level with everyday sexism or misogyny at work or in public. I, I hate to say it, I wish it wasn't the case. There's still a powerlessness experienced by women in our world today. And it's not just today, actually. This has been with us for centuries, hasn't it? 
Uh, Let me paint you a picture of the life of a first century woman living in Athens in Greece. This is a picture of what her life would have been like. The status of Athenian women was very low. Girls received little or no education. Typically, uh, Athenian females were married at puberty and often before. Under Athenian law, a woman was classified as a child, regardless of age, and therefore was the legal property of some man at all stages of her life. Males could divorce by simply ordering a wife out of the household. Moreover, if a woman was seduced or raped, her husband was legally compelled to divorce her. It's tragic, isn't it? If a woman wanted a divorce, she had to have her father or some other man bring her case before a judge. She couldn't even do it herself. You see, friends, that was the experience of women in the ancient world. It was an experience of total and utter powerlessness. And it's that culture, and it's into that culture, that the Pharisees asked Jesus the question in chapter 9, verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I want you to notice a few things. Firstly, notice this is a test. The religious powers, they're not looking for an answer. No, they're looking to claim a scalp. See, it was just four chapters ago that King Herod imprisoned John the Baptist. Why? He condemned his marriage to his sister-in-law. So so here are the Pharisees, right? They're trying to entrap Jesus. And if Jesus does what they hope he'll do, if he answers that question directly, if he directly condemns King Herod, well, guess what? They might just be able to imprison him just like they did with John the Baptist. But notice as well their question, right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we've got to understand, in that culture, the right of divorce lay entirely in the hands of the husband. Though the wife, she was powerless. She was entirely at his mercy. The Pharisees, they're not just asking an academic question about divorce. It's not like in our small group, so often I think when we were looking at this passage this week, we might think, well, I guess this passage is all about divorce. The sum total of what Jesus has to say about marriage, remarriage, and divorce, that's not the point here. No, the Pharisees, they are asking about the extent of a man's power over his wife. Can you see their attitude towards women? Jesus asked them, what did Moses command you? And what's their first impulse? Oh, it's not to speak of a husband's care for his wife. It's not to speak of his commitment to his wife. They don't talk about his love for his wife. No, the Pharisees' first impulse is to assert their power. Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. It's not about what the ideal is. It's not about what marriage is. It's about what I can get away with. It's about my rights, about my power. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. The Pharisees, they're appealing to a passage, a law in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. So so let me read it for us. You'll see it on the screen. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, if after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, that is the second man, that the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she's been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. Preference, can you see what this law is actually about? 
This law isn't intended to empower the husband. It's intended to protect the wife. That the whole point of the divorce certificate is to protect the wife from being abandoned. It means that she can remarry without being accused of having committed adultery. And it means that if her second marriage fails, her first husband can't simply come along and reclaim her. It's ironic, isn't it? When you think about Old Testament law, what do you feel? We often feel like the Old Testament laws are there to disempower us. But can you see this Old Testament law, this certificate, is there to actually empower the woman, to protect her from being traded between men like a commodity. But look at how the Pharisees are spinning it now. No, 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 Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. No, no, they are distorting this protection of women into a license for men. They're they're twisting a law that should protect women from abandonment into a law that actually perpetuates it. They are exploiting, they are abusing, they are taking advantage of powerless women. So how does Jesus respond? Firstly, in verse 5, he points out that Moses included this command. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. I don't know about you, but I just love that picture that he paints there, the hardness of your hearts. In fact, if you're a doctor, you will love this picture. This is what he literally says. It's because of your sclerocardia, your sclerotic hearts. Your hearts hardened by sin, hardened to God. It's a vivid image, isn't it? You know, I wish it wasn't the case, but I suspect that almost, if not everyone gathered here today, has some encounter personally with a broken family or a broken marriage. One third of marriages in Australia end in divorce. That's a sobering statistic. But if you think about it, right, marriage is the coming together of two broken sinners. So in every marriage, can I say, you should expect to see a lot of brokenness and a lot of sin. And at that point, it all hinges on how we respond to it. Will we cultivate repentant hearts, soft hearts, forgiving hearts that seek to reconcile with one another and work towards greater Christ-likeness? Or will we develop hard hearts, callous hearts, sclerotic hearts? The sadness of our world is there are so many people who develop those hard hearts. They look at the brokenness and sin of their spouse and they go, well, that's enough for me. And they walk away from their marriage. It's tragically said, I've seen godly friends abandoned by their spouses who walk away from them and away from Christ. Gosh, it's, it, it's gutting. And we live in a sinful world full of hard hearts and full of broken marriages. And you know what? God is not blind to that reality. Thank God is not blind to that reality. See, we need to understand, God provides this law not as a license for the hardness of our hearts. No, he provides this law as a protection for the powerless victim. Secondly, look at what Jesus does. He reaches all the way back to Genesis 1.27 to show us that the permanence of marriage is there to protect the powerless woman. The permanence of marriage is there to protect the powerless woman. Uh, Notice that God created humanity, not just male, but male and female. 
Both sexes radically equal in their value. And verse 7 says that the husband owes his primary loyalty not, uh, not to his parents, but to his wife. I hate to say it, but we all know time and time again the story of the husband who doesn't lead in his marriage, but ends up becoming, you know, the appeaser-in-chief between his parents and his wife. You know, he's Switzerland, right? I just have nothing to do with this right now. It's not my problem. I don't want to lead. Well, let me say, if you're married, brothers, you are a husband before you are a son. And sisters, if you are married, you are a wife before a daughter. Your marriage comes first. Your primary loyalty and affection is actually no longer to your parents. It's now to one another. And that is there to protect one another. Thirdly, notice that marriage is the permanent union of two people, such that those two people become one flesh, one flesh, inseparable, indivisible. And notice this, what God has joined together, let no one, no man, no woman, no husband, no religious power, let no one separate. Can you see how at every turn, Jesus is seeking to protect the powerless woman? And in verses 10 to 11, he intensifies his protection even more. If a man divorces his wife, that is, if he divorces her sinfully, without cause, if he abandons her, and if he then remarries, Jesus says he's committing adultery against her. If a man abandons his wife and remarries, notice this, he's actively sinning, not against her father, not against her brother, as it would have been in that patriarchal world, no, he is actively sinning against her. This is actually quite powerful. Can you hear what Jesus is saying? She might not matter to him. She might not matter to the world. But Jesus says, she matters to me. She personally matters to God. In fact, she's of such equal value that Jesus elevates her to the status of the husband. He treats her exactly the same. If she divorces her husband which in that time in the law you couldn't, a woman couldn't do, but now Jesus elevates her to that role and marries another, she commits adultery. He gives her the moral agency, the respect, the personhood that that culture would have deprived her of. You see, for the religious powers of that day, marriage, it was just a one-way street in the hands of the husband. But Jesus says, no, 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 this is a two-way street where both husband and wife are responsible for each other. In marriage, your promise protects the powerless. You know, our culture values authenticity. That's the catch cry. It's what Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. There was a time where it was, I think, therefore I am. But now the mantra is, you are what you feel. And if I am what I feel, then actually, Jesus' teaching on marriage sounds awfully oppressive, doesn't it? I mean, it takes away my freedom to pursue love wherever love might lead me. If love leads me into this relationship, into this marriage, then that's where my heart will go. And if love leads me out of it, well then, I need to be true to myself. That's what we say, isn't it? It's better to be true to yourself than stuck in a loveless marriage. But can you see, Mark shows us that what we think is oppressive God actually treats as protective. So, why does Jesus require that marriage be between a man and a woman? 
in order to protect children from being deprived of a father or a mother. Why does Jesus require that marriage be monogamous, that is, between only two persons, in order to protect each spouse from favoritism or neglect? Why does Jesus require that marriage be for life? Well, it's to protect each spouse from being abandoned. Our culture says that marriage is all about sentimental love. And as soon as the love goes away, well, I guess so does your marriage. But Jesus says, no, marriage is about committed love, covenant love, a love that lasts beyond our feelings, that goes beyond dopamine and endorphins. I mean, our world says, so if you somehow fall out of love or no longer feel that spark that you once felt, just follow your heart, be true to yourself. But Jesus says, no, if you fall out of love, you can't just walk out of this marriage. You can't just abandon your spouse. You can't just leave them high and dry. There may be valid reasons to tragically end a marriage, for adultery or for abuse. But that's not what Jesus is addressing in this passage. No, in these verses, Jesus is telling every married couple, the permanence of your promise is to protect the powerless. The permanence of your promise is to protect the powerless. Jesus is a king for powerless women. But you know what? It's not just women who were powerless in the ancient world. We saw last week, didn't we? Children, economic deadweight. They were vulnerable. They were entirely dependent on their parents. They contributed nothing. We love kids now, don't we? I can't wait till the moment that in our church we can have kids here. But the ancient world, it was merciless in how it treated children. It was normal. It was absolutely commonplace for a parent to abandon their child outdoors where they would either die of hypothermia or be preyed on by wild animals. That's not just a few people. That was a pretty widespread practice. Back in 1991, when some of you were born, archaeologists excavated and uh, the sewers of a port city called Ashkelon in Israel. I want to read to you what they discovered there. When we excavated and dry-sieved the desiccated sewage, we found the bones of nearly a hundred little babies, apparently murdered or thrown into the sewer. That is how the ancient world treated children. You see, along with women, children were the powerless people of the ancient world. And we see that on display, don't we? As, as the disciples, they, they rebuke people who would bring their children to Jesus. Now, when you think about it, this is absolutely remarkable, right? Just one chapter ago, one chapter ago, Jesus told his disciples, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And now, one chapter later, the disciples are telling those children, go away. It's tragic, but when you think about it, actually, we're a bit like the disciples, aren't we? We are more shaped by our world than our king. So it's no wonder that in verse 14, Jesus is angry. In fact, have you noticed that in Mark's gospel, every time that Jesus is angry, it's because the people he loves are being exploited. I know people don't like that picture of an angry Jesus. Why can't Jesus just be a bit more loving? Does he seem to have anger management problems? But can you see that Jesus' anger is actually motivated by his love? Jesus' anger is motivated by his love. 
let's, let's do an example. If I say I love Wilkins, for example, but I'm not angry when someone punches him in the face, do I really love him? No, Jesus' love for the powerless, not that Wilkins is powerless, he's stronger than I am, but Jesus' love for the powerless motivates his anger at the powerful. Jesus' love for our souls motivates his wrath for our sin. No, you want an angry God. Because an angry God shows that he cares for you. And just as Jesus protects powerless women, now in verse 14 he protects powerless children. It's a famous verse, isn't it? It's beautiful. Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God in all its majesty is not for the powerful. It's for the powerless. It's for children like them. So don't turn them away. No, welcome them. Embrace them. Accept them. And in verse 15, shock horror, be like them. Be like them. See, don't just protect the powerless. No, become the powerless. Or acknowledge your powerlessness. If you want to enter my kingdom, Jesus says, come to me like one of these children. Totally dependent. Utterly reliant. With no means to save yourself. If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad that you're with us today and I, ho- I hope that you can actually join us on site next week, Lord willing. But I hope you can see that Jesus has the power to save you however powerless you might be. My gosh, He loves you so much that not only does He welcome you in your powerlessness, He died for you as well. You see, in Jesus, the powerful God became a powerless man in order to die to save a powerless people. He he came down as one of us so that he might save any of us. You see, friends, if you come to him with empty hands, he will welcome you with open arms. And just like he does for the children in verse 16, he will bless you. He'll save you. He'll call you his own. You see, friends, Jesus is a king for powerless women. He is a king for powerless children. He is a king for powerless people. People like you and me. Well, what does this mean for us today? Firstly, Jesus calls us to embrace the powerless. Embrace the powerless. You know, earlier this week, my friend told me about a Christian woman she knows. And many years ago, this woman, she was married to a man who was a significant leader in his church. He would serve on church council. He would lead a midweek small group. And even occasionally, he'd preach on Sundays. But all the while, whilst he was being an upright Christian man on Sundays, during the week, he would verbally emotionally and physically abuse his wife at home. Eventually, their marriage fell apart and this woman became a single mother. She went from one position of powerless 
to yet another position of powerlessness. And one day she turned up at church. She turned up at church hoping to settle in with her daughter. But as soon as the women of that church heard that she was divorced, they judged her in their hearts. They didn't know her pain, but simply because she was divorced, they did not embrace her. They did not welcome her. They did not care for her. In fact, they excluded her. And she could feel it. You might wonder how she knows. Because it wasn't until years later when they finally heard her story that some of those women confessed their sin and asked her forgiveness. Friends, the reality is that many churches have not done a good job in welcoming the neglected and the abused. And that includes, in fact, I think especially abandoned women. If we treat church like a social club with pristine lives for powerful people, when a broken person turns up at our doorstep, we might just see their baggage and quietly wish that they didn't spoil our fun or stain our heaven. Friends, we cannot be a church like that. We must not be a church like that. We need to be a church that reflects the heart of our King. A church that doesn't judge, despise or shun powerless victims of neglect and abuse. No, we need to be a church that embraces them just like Jesus does. With arms wide open. And that means being a church where Christian men use our power not for our own good and at the expense of others, no, where Christian men use our power for the good of others and at the expense of ourself. It means being a church where Christian men use our power to love and protect the powerless. And let me say, brothers, that means not being passive. It means being willing to call out crude joking, saying no to inappropriate behaviour, and where necessary, stepping in to protect the weak and lowly. You know, while our church has no children now, in just a few years it will. And when there are kids running around here, it is on us as a church to make sure that we use our power to protect them. Let's face it, the entire world knows by now that so many churches have absolutely failed to care for the children whom Jesus loves. Can I tell you, if Jesus was angry at his disciples for rebuking the little children, then, I, then I'll tell you what, he burns with white-hot rage at the abuse of children in his church. And can I promise you, he will judge those who have physically and sexually abused children entrusted to their care. We must be a church that protects the children whom Jesus loves. And I'm telling us all of this now, even though we don't have children and we haven't had many of any abandoned or neglected women turn up yet, we need to know the church that we need to be now so that when that comes, we will know who we must be. We must be a church that protects the children whom Jesus loves. And can I say, of all the children who need protection, it is those who are yet to be born who need it the most. In fact, they are the most powerless people in our society. Because unlike everyone else, 
It is unborn children who cannot speak for themselves. Did you know that half of all pregnancies in Australia are unplanned? And half of those pregnancies are aborted. There aren't hard numbers, but we know for certain that is thousands of unborn children who are not just rebuked or turned away, but thousands of unborn children who are killed each and every year. Now, I wonder, when you hear about that, what happens to your heart? What do you feel in your heart? Well, let me suggest, if we respond with the heart of our king, then we will feel two deep emotions. Number one, we will feel anger. Anger at the killing of powerless, vulnerable and innocent children. And at the same time, we will feel a deep compassion, a compassion for the mother who is trapped in a desperate and seemingly impossible and inescapable situation. You see, in every abortion, there are two powerless people, the mother and the child. And the question is, will we embrace them both? In fact, if a woman in our church experienced an unplanned pregnancy, would she feel safe enough to speak up and seek our help? And would we show her the mercy, the forgiveness, and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would we embrace her like Jesus does? Secondly, protect your parents. Protect your parents. Now, you might wonder, Adam, why in the world are we talking about my parents? We're talking about powerless people. Have you met my parents? My parents are not powerless. If anything, look, let's just not finish that thought. You see, friends, women and children were the powerless people of the ancient Eastern world, but I actually want to suggest that now is the elderly who are the powerless people of the modern Western world. When I worked in Canberra, it was part of my job to read the reports of many royal commissions. An exciting job, wasn't it? Can I tell you, I've only cried reading one of them. I've only ever cried reading one of those reports, and it was the report of the Aged Care Royal Commission. Because it sums up Australia's cultural attitude towards the elderly with one word. Neglect. Neglect. It was traumatic reading. It tells the story of elderly people being slapped and dragged along the floor by the nurses who should have cared for them. Of grandfathers soiling themselves and waiting for hours to be cleaned up and cared for. Of grandmothers with bed sores left untreated that were infected down to the bone. Andrew Reid tells me that in the aged care homes that he used to visit a number of years ago, he said about only 2% of residents are visited by their children more than twice a year. Let me say that again, about only 2% of residents are visited by their children more than twice a year. That's on Christmas and their birthday. It's tragic. And you know what? I have seen some children so bitter at how their parents raised them that in their adulthood, they actually punish their parents by neglect. Many of you are in your 20s and 30s. You're not thinking about this right now. And there's a goodness and rightness to thinking about what's in front of you. You're thinking about happy things, getting married, 
having kids, buying your first home. You've got your whole life ahead of you. And quite naturally, you're going to think about your spouse and your children before anything else. But let me ask, are you thinking about how to protect your parents? It might not happen right now. It might still be another 10 years. But in good time, they will be the powerless ones who will need your protection. And let me tell you, they'll say they don't want it. They'll say they don't need it. They're lying. They really want it. They're just too proud to tell you. But even if they don't want it, God still calls us to give it. 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul writes, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And if you read the context of it, household does not mean my wife and three kids. It means my widowed mother. You see, it might not be today, but when the day comes that your parents have no power to care for themselves, will you protect them? Will you protect them? Friends, the truth is, at some stage in life, all of us will need protection. Without fail, every single one of us, at some stage in life, all of us will need protection. And when our day comes, who will we look to? Who will protect us? Who will care for us? Jesus is showing us that God's people must be a picture of God's kingdom. We must share the heart of our king for the powerless people of our world. And it starts with the powerless people among us. So let me cast a vision before you of the church that we might be in years to come. Just picture it, right? Just picture it. A church where all our married couples are honouring their promise to protect one another till death do them part. A church where all our singles are being protected by the family of God. A church where all our parents are protecting their children and in later in life, those same children then protecting their parents. It's actually a beautiful vision of a kingdom, a people, a church for the powerless. The truth is, our world out there is a brutal place to live if you are a powerless person. Who do you call? Where do you run to? No, friends, our witness as a church will be shown in how we do marriage, in how we do singleness, in how we do parenting, and in how we care for our aging parents. How we as believers do family life will be the distinguishing flashpoint from our culture. And it will be shown by our heart to protect the powerless among us. Friends, it may be the case that today the powerless person is not an abused woman, an aborted child or a neglected parent. Gosh, it may be the case that the powerless person is you. For whatever reason, you might feel that you have problems so deep, so intractable that you just feel so powerless to fix them. It could be depression or anxiety that hangs over you. Financial insecurity that is trapping you. Or maybe friendships or relationships that just don't stop worrying you. And you've seen it, right? Out there in the world, it's not a great place to be. There's nowhere to turn and no one to call. And you feel absolutely powerless. Jesus wants you to know just what kind of king he is. He is a kind king. 
He is a gentle king. He is a compassionate king. And he wants nothing more than to take you in his arms, lay his hands on you and bless you with his love. He wants nothing more than for you to come to him just as you are. So will you come? Will you come? Will you run into the arms and the embrace of this tender, merciful and loving king? Can I tell you, if you do, if you come, you will have Christ. And you might have nothing else, but Christ is all you will ever need. In him, you will find the protection for your soul. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we we praise you that though we are weak, you are strong and you extend to us your love and your mercy and your compassion and your grace. So for those of us, God, who are powerless this day, who have nowhere to turn and no one to call, may we come to you. And for us as a church family, may we be a people who embrace the powerless among us, who welcome the neglected, who accept the abused, and who extend to them the heart of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.